What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 18 of Calling All Craft Beer. My name is Luke, I'm your host, and today we got some cool stuff we're going to talk about. So, one of the cool things we're going to start with here. Now, uh, I did a little poll earlier with um, kind of talking about spouses and people asking questions in regards to people's spouses who may not necessarily be um, craft beer connoisseurs or into craft beer the same way they are. If you send your spouse to the to your local bottle shop and ask them to pick out a beer for you, will they do you right or will they do you wrong? I can't wait to get some responses back from you guys about this, but today... My wife was actually out, and I uh, sent her a text, and I said, hey, babe, do me a favor. Go to the you know local bottle shop and pick me up a beer. Pick out the coolest label you can find. Now, she could have done that, and she actually did come back with one with a pretty cool label, but she knows what kind of beer I like. So she went and looked and was really more concerned with picking something out that she believed that I would like than she was worried about cool labels, which was pretty cool. And she's not a beer person. We're talking about a woman who, Miller Lite, Michelob Ultra, that's like, you know, her thing. Like, she's not into beer, per se, in any way, shape, or form. So she got me a Elysium Brewing Day Glow IPA, which is, a you know, just a single um, malty IPA. It's a shelfie, but it's good. Um, and it does have a, kind of a pretty cool-looking label. It has some... Um, some rainbow colors and, and, a, and a tiger and stuff like that on it. So it's kind of neat. And um, it is a good beer overall. You know, it's a nice malty IPA. It has some hoppiness to it, but not, it's it, you know, it's not super hoppy West Coast style. Um, it's more malty than hoppy, but it's very good. And she also picked me up a, which is another thing that she always does. I asked for one, she'll bring me two. <laughs> and um, she picked up a... Sweet Baby Java from Duclaw, which is their um, chocolate peanut butter porter. And this one is the more robust coffee version, which I actually haven't had. I've had the regular um, Sweet Baby Jesus, but I have not had the Sweet Baby Java. So pretty cool. And I'm excited to try the other one, which we'll give it a try another day. I was actually considering breaking open one of the darknesses that I received from my buddy Ross Benick. Um, the 2017 version for today's show, but decided otherwise want to hang on to those bad boys for a little bit longer. So last few weeks have been mellow for um, in terms of beer for me. I've kind of been trying to um, push back a little bit, been busy with work and um, sadly, you know, just simply trying to recuperate from those uh, lost porch bombs that um, set me back quite a bit. You know, I've uh, been trying to rebuild the stash for the ones that I need to go out. And then I have one for um, my buddy Andrew that I need to get out ASAP that I've been really trying to build, you know, a nice solid bomb and put it together for him. But getting set back about 500 bucks on, you know, six porch bombs that uh, actually it was four porch bombs total that ended up getting destroyed and, um, you know, not landing where they were supposed to through USPS. And it kicked my ass, you know, between shipping and the cost of all the beers, that was about 500 bucks in the hole. And that's a lot, takes a lot to recoup, especially when I'm still getting back on my feet after not being at work, um, not being, not working for about six months. So forgive me guys, I'm still kind of working on um, coming back from that. And I do apologize, but that'll be something that gets taken care of um, very soon. So 
let's kind of get into the topic of the day. And the topic of the day um, is going to be, we're going to talk a little bit about um, extracts versus um, like real, real ingredients. So, and what I mean by that is when you talk about beer or just anything that has flavor in general, there's two ways that something can be flavored, essentially naturally flavored, which meaning when it comes to like a lot of fruit flavored beers, you know, things like that, they use actual real, you know, fruity products, you know, real berries, real fruits, you know, real malts, real, real barleys, like all those typical ingredients that we would use to brew and create beer. And then you can buy all that stuff essentially in extract form, which is basically concentrated liquid versions. So what's the difference? Well, the biggest difference realistically is that anything you get in an extract form, whether it be a fruity, ver- a, you know, a fruity flavor, chocolate flavor, malty flavor, you know, hops, whatever you do in an extract form, it is highly concentrated. So the best way to kind of explain this um, long term is to think about like a water additive. You know, for instance, you can do if you were to take a bottle of water and add, let's say, some cucumbers and strawberries and lemons and things like that to it. The citrus, of course, is going to be the stronger and more overpowering flavor, but it's still not going to be super overly flavored. You're still going to be drinking water with a hint of fruity flavor in it. You know, unless you pack the bottle so entirely full that there's barely any water and it's mostly fruit, then you may have a much stronger flavor, but the concentration is just simply not there. Now, on the other hand, you take a scoop of, you know, Sunny Delight or, I mean, uh, yeah, Sunny Delight has a powder form or um, Crystal Light or Mio or one of those like, you know, liquid extracts that you add into water. And it's totally different. You're talking about super sweet, lots of flavor, you know, and there are some people who will argue and disagree and say that it tastes fake. And I don't disagree in certain circumstances, especially with water additives and things like Mio and things like that. But having come from, all right, having come from a background in, you know, like supplementation and, and, um, flavors and things like that. I am used to fake flavors, (laughs) so to speak. So I'm used to making things taste like something that it's not, it really isn't, you know, with, you know, the addition of additives and things like that. And I'm used to it. So I'm probably a little bit more okay with that in a beer form than a lot of other people are. But let me get into really the issue. Now, there's two main issues here. First issue is when we talk real ingredients, when we talk real fruits, you know, um, real cocoa nibs, real vanilla beans, real things like that, that are going to be put into these products. We're talking about dollars and cents. We're talking about pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of these products needing to be used in order for the beer to actually have the flavor that most of us would desire. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been underwhelmed by the flavor of a lot of beers more times than not. When we start getting into, you know, flavors like vanilla and peanut butter and cocoa and things like that, I've been underwhelmed more times than I've been overwhelmed, so to speak. So with real ingredients, the amount that it takes in order to really make that flavor present in the beer is overwhelming. And it's, and it, and when I talk about overwhelming, I'm talking more about cost. You know, we're talking about the how much it's going to cost for us to to make a stout with cocoa nibs and vanilla and peanut butter and da 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 da. You know, you get into all these different flavors. Well, if you're really going to use all natural things, 
you know, real nuts, you know, real fruits, real cocoa nibs, real vanilla. It is super, super expensive. You know, we might, that's where, where do you think a lot of these, you know, craft brews come from where we're paying eight, nine dollars, ten dollars, eleven dollars, twelve dollars a can or a bottle. A lot of times it's because it costs that brewery so much to manufacture that brew. But what what in turn happens in a lot of those situations is we end up with hot, you know, great flavor profiles and a really phenomenal brew that most of us are okay paying for because the flavor profile is so fantastic. But at the end of the day, if you want that to be widely available to more people, price point makes a big difference. So then we get into the extract side. Well, extracts are in some cases, you know, a lot of people will argue the fact and say, well, they taste fake. You can taste it's an extract. I will guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I'm given the ample amount of time necessary for me to create two brews, one using all natural ingredients and one using extracts, I guarantee you that with the right amount of time to perfect the balance of the flavors that you would not be able to tell which one is which. And the most important piece about that is, is that with the extracts, it's still it, the extracts are still being made in most cases from the original substances, but they're just highly concentrated. So the flavors are going to be that much greater. And what happens today in all walks of life, whether it's soda or the supplement industry or beer, whatever the case may be, these things are overly utilized. So what happens is, is that you get a brand that they'll be like, all right, yeah, they put a ton of extract in the brew and it ends up they end up doing, they end up either going way overboard to where the flavor is overwhelming, it's way too much, and it tastes fake, or they don't put enough to the point where it's just as underwhelming as a brew where you may have used the real ingredients, but not quite enough of everything in order for you to get your point across. So there's a lot of breweries out there that are simply not taking the time necessary to create and find that balance. So like I said, I guarantee you that if I were to take two very similar recipes create one with extract one with all natural ingredients pardon me that given the right amount of time to perfect the flavor profile you would not be able to tell the difference between which one was made with an extract and which one was made with um all natural ingredients and that's an honest truth but what happens a lot of breweries are just so quick to rush a brew to production and to get it out there that they just don't take they don't simply don't take the time to perfect the flavoring with the extracts. So a lot of people are immediately against an extract brewed beer because they're like, no, 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 it doesn't taste right. It tastes fake. It's disgusting. But when you've had one that is brewed with extracts and it actually comes off, then it's one of those situations where you're kind of like, wow, this is an extract beer. And they're like, yeah. And you're like, I didn't know an extract beer could taste like this. You know, and I'll use an example um, there was a, um, a brew a couple years ago that I had at, um, at a homebrewers, uh, homebrewers, um, event that was put together here in Markham Park in Florida. And it was a, you know, kind of like a, kind of like what they do out in Cali and stuff where it was, um, a competition. It was almost like a chili cook-off. It was, a, it actually was a chili cook-off and homebrew beer event. And there was a bunch of guys there tons of people who are known in this area for making great beers. Some of them that have actually moved on and opened their own breweries. This was a few years back. So, um, it was, some of these people are, you know, have moved up within the industry and are now 
well-known, and I'm not going to call anybody out because I don't want to embarrass anybody or make anybody feel funny, but but there was an older gentleman there, um, and he actually, I had a long conversation with him, about 35, 40-minute conversation, and it was, this was only his third beer that he had brewed, and his friends had such a phenomenal response to it that he decided to enter it into the competition. Now, his was, it was a barley wine, and um, it was you know, super strong. It was like 12% ABV. And when I talked to him, you know, there were, it was very little that he had done with this brew that he had actually used real ingredients. The majority of the ingredients were extracts. And it was amazing to, to find that out. And he actually ended up taking second place in the entire competition and won to, and the funny thing was that the gentleman who ended up winning was a stout and the stout that ended up winning was primarily made of extracts. So it was just crazy. And this was, this was back before this was even like a huge thing. Extracts were still, you know, I don't want to say they were still new because I think, I believe extracts have been being used for a long time, you know, very, very long time, but people were really just starting to get into doing a lot of crazy flavor profiles with, with craft beer and things like that. We hadn't gotten into crazy stuff like milkshake IPAs and, you know, all kind all these funky, uh, lactose variants and things like that, that are out there now. Hazy IPAs were not even a, a, a you know, a thought in people's minds at this point in time. But I remember that I still remember that to this day. And it's something that I kind of lean on and use for my knowledge because like I said, I've been involved with like flavor profiles and things like that, this for other products. And I think people are so quick to judge or turn their back on, you know, a, a beer when somebody says, well, it's made with extracts and they immediately want to dump on it and say, ah, it's garbage. It's made with extracts. Well, just because it's made with extracts doesn't mean it can't be a phenomenal brew. I would put a well-balanced, perfectly built extract beer up against an all-natural beer any time of day because I do believe that when done right, they can actually be more flavorful and actually they can provide what we expect a lot more than a natural brew sometimes can. Doesn't mean a natural brew can't, but if you're not a huge brewery that has you know, a, uh, you know, 500 gallon tank or bigger, you know, to be able to manufacture something with the amount of raw materials you need in order to get your flavors across with that brew. It's, it's hard. You know, if you're a home brewer that's brewing at home and you got five gallon buckets and you're trying to brew five gallons of beer, it is extremely difficult for you to have enough raw material to really allow any of those flavors to become present in your beer with the with the exception of them potentially becoming a hint of a flavor in the beer and sometimes that's what you're looking for and that's okay but if you're gonna you know sell if you're gonna sell somebody a beer that's a you know raspberry vanilla lactose you know um ipa or sour style ipa and people drink it and the only thing they taste is a little bit of raspberry and then a finish a, a, a tiny finish of vanilla on the back end you know, some people will be okay with that, but then there's going to be people who aren't because they're expecting almost like a raspberry milkshake when they drink that. And there's certain ways that, that brews like that have to be brewed appropriately. And on a lot of flavor profiles, like things, you know, things like raspberries and blueberries, where it's very hard to get across that physical flavor without using an extract. So, ah, okay little malty day glow enjoying it so kind of wanted to touch on that it actually came up um on craft brew junkies which is one of the facebook groups that i'm a part of and somebody actually mentioned it and asked and there were and 90 percent of the people who responded were like ah extract beers are garbage da, 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 da. you know and hey dude i get it i understand completely 
especially when you come at it from a raw ingredient standpoint, you want to say, okay, I prefer raw, you know, um, all natural ingredients. And hey, I'm not going to deny that if I could get the same flavor profile out of raw, raw ingredients in smaller doses to keep the cost of the beer down, I would do the same thing. But let's think about it. If I can create, if I can make you the same exact flavor profile in a beer using extracts, that's within, let's say, one to, let's say, three to five percent in terms of the overall quality and balance of the beer, as opposed to a beer that was made using, you know, 100% natural raw ingredients, and I can sell that beer to you for $4 less a pint, are you going to buy it? Absolutely. Guarantee you that if I could, that, that if I sold you a, let's say a, you know, um, Let's say we'll, we'll take ex, you know an example like a a um, toasted marshmallow vanilla you know milk stout you know like a sweet stout and say eleven point eight percent ABV something like that you know a stout that in a sixteen ounce can typically in most cases would probably sell for ten ninety nine eleven ninety nine a can um, maybe better depending on where you are in the United States if I can make that same exact beer with extracts and sell it to you for six bucks a can which one do you think is going to sell more? And at the end of the day, you can argue with me till you're blue in the face and say, you know, people are going to buy the all natural one more. And you could be right. And there are certain places and certain breweries in this world or in this in the United States right now that are known for their natural you know, ingredients and things like that. And potentially that could be a full on, you know, wonderful sale for that particular brewery. But at the end of the day, if you don't know any better and they taste just as good and one's Eleven dollars a can and one six. There's no competition. Sorry, guys, but that's just the fact of the matter, and that is the reason why extracts seem to be becoming more and more popular amongst craft brewers in the United States right now because it's so much more cost effective, and the fact that it does garner a lot more flavor. It's just a little bit more difficult to find the balance because you have to put a little bit more time, effort, and energy into finding that balance versus just dumping a shit ton of extract into your brew and saying, okay, it's got all the vanilla and chocolate in there that it needs. Let's see how it tastes in three weeks. <laughs> you know, it, that's not the way, you know, that, that you need to do this. There's definitely some trial and error when it comes to extracts, you know, just like there is with anything else, to be quite honest. But if you're, have been using raw, raw ingredients for a long time and you're just getting into extracts, it takes a little bit of time for you to find that balance and to secure the flavor that you're looking for using such a concentrated extract. So moving on from that, um, I thought that was kind of a cool topic and something that was um, something neat that we could talk about to kind of, you know, shake things up a little bit for this week. So let's talk about getting to a little bit of brews. So I think I've talked about this brew before, um, but I am just pleasantly, I don't want to say overwhelmed, but you know, a lot of people give six point brewing shit for some reason. Um, you know, why? Maybe it's the small cans. Maybe it's their uniqueness, you know, little New York brewery or whatever. I don't know, you know, what the deal is, but I happen to like the brewery a lot. <clears throat> and um, just recently had one that I've spoken about before and one that I haven't that both were just, you know, killer brews. You know, Dabble is a... Um, it's a double, it's a hazy double IPA, 8.2, 8.2 or 8.3% ABV, I believe. 
and dude super super crushable nice and juicy it's just a you know phenomenal it's one of those those doubles that you could literally drink an entire six pack in one night like it's nothing goes down so smooth tastes delicious you know it is just a I mean, for lack of a better term, it's a solid, crushable double IPA, double hazy IPA. Juicy as all get out. Just, I loved it. I mean, it is, it's got to be one of my favorites right now. That one and Meltdown are both right there, kind of like neck and neck with each other. And then we move on to the Big Dog, which um, I stumbled across some double dry hopped high res, which high res is their triple IPA, 11.1, 11.2% ABV. And um, this one is the double dry hop version, which resin high res you know even low res from six point they all have great aromas but this double dry hop version of high res the aroma is intoxicating absolutely amazing you crack the can open you know pour it out nice you know nice head that lingers nice and solid has a thickness to it that just you know wafts an aroma you know into your nostrils that it just kind of hits in hits you in the feels and you're like it just smells so good. There's a cleanness, a crispness, you know, just a floweriness to it that is just, it's just got a phenomenal aroma. It is boozy. Um, in my opinion, the this double dry hop version was actually more boozy tasting than the regular high res, in my opinion. Resin in itself, high res, you know, uh, resin and low res, they all have a, you know, really high IBU. They're all up above 100 IBUs. And, um, so they have they carry with them a sharp bitterness but the great thing about it is is that you know I've, i'm sure a lot of you guys know or have heard that apparently supposedly the human taste bud you know they can only register up to 100 ibus so what's really cool about resin high res low res even because even with low res it still has a, a great air of bitterness it's almost so bitter that it's sweet so you get that when you initially take a sip what when it hits your taste buds you get that that harsh bitterness and then it as it cascades past the taste buds it actually smooths out and becomes a super sweet and it finishes with a nice sweetness to it so it's a really good balance it's just a really cool brew overall um something that i'm you know i really enjoy and uh i was super happy to stumble across this double dry hop high res because it is not something that i had been able to have before and i i really enjoyed it so great brew and um i'm just Looking forward to stumbling across it again. I think I might have talked about it on the last show, and if I did, I apologize for repeating myself, but it's definitely a great brew. And um, so we're going to go. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the um, InBev situation. And, you know, there's a lot of, I see a lot of people like just hating on, you know, a lot of small breweries and stuff. And a lot of you guys out there may not even know you know, may not even have an in or an understanding of a lot of this stuff, you know, but you, you run across breweries like Goose Island, you know, who originally used to be a small locally owned brewery, you know, up in the Chicago area. And unfortunately they sold out to what is the conglomerate of InBev or Anheuser-Busch and, you know, um, it, Anheuser-Busch was actually bought out by the company, I believe from Brazil. And now the collective, you know, company coming together is InBev. And I read an article the other day that's actually actually says right now that, that InBev itself actually owns more market share in craft beer than any other company within craft beer right now. So 
you look around at even, you know, breweries like even Elysian, which is one that I'm drinking right now, you know, that is now, I don't know if they're part of InBev or if they're just were bought up by another, you know, um, large conglomerate. I, you know, didn't sit around and do the research to find out exactly who owns what, but I know that there's a lot of them, you know, that uh, Wicked Weed is another one that's that I get a lot down here that was, you know, a smaller local brewery that got bought out by InBev and, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to be play devil's advocate here a little bit and say, look, you know, one of the cool things, in my opinion, you know, am I, am I against like big government and big business coming in and like wiping out the little guys? Of course. But if you're wicked weed, if you're, um, Elysian, if you're the, the small guys who own these places and you have companies like InBev coming in and saying, Hey, we want to buy you up, but we want to keep with your tradition. So, What's really cool about a lot of these places, even like Constellation coming in and buying Funky Buddha, you know, a lot of people got pissed and were like, they sold out, they did this. And you know what? You're right. And in essence, they did sell out. But the cool thing, especially with Funky Buddha, is that they've maintained their character. They've maintained the culture that is Funky Buddha. It hasn't changed. If anything, being part of Constellation has helped with distribution. It has helped them to have more capital to be able to generate more beers more often so that we're starting to see these brews that we love, you know, come around more often so that they're able to get in more people's hands. Now, does that take away from the character of the small town brewery where you're waiting in line for six hours for a can release of a beer that you can only get once a year? Yeah, but not everybody cares about that. Let's be real. You know, for all of us, I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, be one to say that I've never sat and waited in the can line for eight to 12 hours. And part of it has, or or even an an entire overnight deal. And a lot of that has to do with the simple fact that I'm in South Florida and it's just not, there isn't an environment for that yet down here. We don't have breweries in most places where people are waiting, you know, setting up tents overnight and waiting in line for, you know, 20 hours to, to get for can releases or bottle releases and things like that. I think down here, the only time that you're ever going to see anybody waiting in most cases is going to be for things like Jay Wakefield and stuff like that, that when they do like bottle releases. But at the end of the day, we don't have, you know, the, the, the six block long, you know, waiting um, lines of, of people waiting like 450 North does and Monkish and, you know, these other, you know, um, bearded Iris and, and, you know, these other breweries that are out there that have these just, they, they've made a culture, a subculture out of, you know, bottle and can releases to the point where they have people waiting in lines, doing bottle shares, hanging out, you know, getting to know each other. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm jealous at the fact that I have not been able to be a part of that because it happens so so much more frequently in other states around the United States. But I'm also not against the fact that if I really love a beer and it sucks at the fact that I can only get it one time a year, it's not a bad thing, in my opinion, that we were able to get those brews into people's hands more often or that we're not able to to increase distribution and quality of the product overall now don't get me wrong i also believe the opposite direction where if a a company such as imbev or constellation comes in and completely changes a brand and ruins its reputation and ruins its culture and ruins you know what it's known for and essentially that brand just dies because at that point there's no longer a following or the people that stand behind it that were originally there then I understand that being a problem too. But I have yet to see too many of them come in and just like flip them upside down, screw them over and say, you know, you guys suck. You're never, you're not allowed to do what you want to do anymore. Now we're going to make you like a, 
you know, you're going to be the next Budweiser or Yinling or, you know, whatever the case may be where you're only going to make these five beers. That's not in most cases, that's not what they're doing. They're allowing these small breweries to keep their identities. And in a lot of cases, the original owners and management are maintaining the breweries and staying part, you know, and, and staying on board and continuing to be a piece of that process going forward. But they have the backing of a larger conglomerate that's able to help them you know, again, increase distribution, increase overall product productivity and things like that. So they're in most cases, from what I've seen, I'm not against, you know, the 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 idea of having, you know, some big beverage companies come in and purchase these smaller guys in certain circumstances. You know, like if you're if you are a smaller brewery and you're looking to get bought up, bought out because you've you let's say you've been in it for 12 years and you're ready to move on. And you have a company like InBev or Constellation step in and buy you out, but they maintain your culture and, you know, the integrity of your brand. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, nobody should be beating you over the head and calling you a sellout or telling you telling you you're terrible if you succeeded at doing it. My I mean, dude, I would be so flattered if InBev or Constellation stepped in and said, dude, you have created such a phenomenal you know, force here with your brewery that we want to come in and buy you out and make you a part of our, you know, our larger conglomerate or brand. That to me right there is one of those situations where it's like, all right, you've succeeded. You've created something that has garnered that much um, acceptance within the marketplace and that much importance in the beer community that they want you to be a part of their larger team. Now I get it. Big business. A lot of people, you know, hate that. And, and, um, there's an air to, you know, the small guys, you know, hanging on. And I get that. And if you are a small brewery owner and you want to remain that way, there's nothing wrong with that. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep hustling. You keep you get out there and do the best that you can in each and every situation and maintain your integrity, maintain the quality of your product and keep doing what you're doing. There is nothing wrong with that. But nobody should be giving these other companies a hard time if these guys are making the decision to sell out to bigger brands as long as they're maintaining the integrity. I have yet to hear about one, in my opinion anyway, where like a conglomerate has stepped in and said, you have no choice but to sell to us. That's not what's happening. They're stepping in and talking to these guys and these guys are thrilled at the fact that they're being offered tens of millions of dollars plus for their brands. And yeah, they're choosing retirement or and or financial security for the long run in order for them, but that's still being able to maintain sometimes partial ownership, sometimes no ownership, sometimes just a managerial stake in the company to be able to see the company move forward. And the cool part about this is I've actually seen a couple of these guys where they've had a brewery, sold it out, turned around and opened another one. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that, I mean, there's nothing greater in my opinion than creating something so good that a larger company comes in and says, we want to buy this from you. We're going to give you $20 million. We're going to take over your brand, but we're going to maintain you know, the, the integrity and the belief and the structure that you have here. And then you say, okay, cool. Give me the 20 million bucks, turn around, walk away and go six blocks down the road and open up another brewery. You know what I mean? That's, that's phenomenal. I mean, that, that's one of those situations that in most cases, most people wouldn't be able to generate that type of revenue on their own, but it gives them the opportunity to be able to do something they really want to do, like create a larger brand or create something that just takes things a step further than they would be able to with their own capital or their own money that they have going on with the brand that they have. 
And now they're able to do those things that they dreamed about because they sold out of one brand and moved on to another one. You know, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes when you deal with InBev and Constellation and big, you know, big business like this, they're going to shut you out by giving you a non-compete or something like that and making it to where, okay, we give you 20 million bucks. You can't compete with us for five years. But again, you know, those are the risks and things that you take when you put yourselves in these situations. But, it, you know, I get it, you know, and, and there are probably people who have been in the craft beer game a lot longer than I have that would step back and say, well, I remember the days when this brand was that much better. And now that they got taken over by so-and-so, they're just mediocre. And you could be right. And a lot of things and, and in, in a lot of circumstances, I believe that what happens there is that you get leadership that may be part of the of the transition and part of the process and essentially they fall off like let's let's put you there's two two types of people in the world one i can give you 20 million bucks and tell you that i want you to still be part of the brand and still to maintain the integrity and you care so much about what you're doing and about the difference that you're making in your community that you're going to hang on and remain a part of that and continue to drive that brand forward and be innovative and create new things and have fun and do it all within the confines of a managerial aspect while you're being basically protected financially by a larger conglomerate, or you're going to do it. You're going to get your 20 million bucks. You're going to hang out for five or six months after, and then you're going to get bored because you kind of feel like maybe you don't have any control anymore, or maybe you don't want to work anymore because you got 20 million bucks in the bank and you decide at that point, Hey, it's time for me to move on. I just need to go do something else in my life and figure it out or go travel or go do whatever the case may be. And so these people are taken off and when they're gone and that oversight that was maintaining the integral integral structure of the brand is gone. So when that person leaves, you know, the brand then takes a turn for something that you know, most people would probably be upset about or frustrated with because they don't have that original managerial force or that original piece of leadership in the building that was maintaining the structure. So I can see a downside to both situations, but from what I've read in a lot of these, you know, circumstances where bigger companies have come in and taken over smaller breweries, a lot of times leadership remains the same, at least for a period of time after the transition. And in those cases, a lot of those breweries, the like I said, you know, the, the culture is remaining the same, innovation is remaining the same, recipes are remaining the same. And if anything, what I've noticed is that with a lot of companies that may have had limited distribution at one point or another, when they do get involved with a larger conglomerate, you know what? One thing that like one thing I'll say about Funky Buddha, it says since Funky Buddha became a part of Constellation, their um, consistency has gotten 10 times better. Because their consistency in the past from one batch to the next of the same exact beer, it was you weren't 100% sure what you were going to get. Sometimes it was better. Sometimes it was worse. Sometimes it was just as good. But it, there was a very there was a lack of overall consistency in some of their brews. Since Constellation has stepped in and taken over the brand, I feel like their consistency has gotten better. Now, there may not be any other reason to that than coincidence. Or it may just be me paying more attention. But that's how I personally feel at this given time, because I feel like with smaller, I feel like sometimes with smaller breweries, they are all about the next big thing more so than they are about creating, let's say, you know, five consistently good brews that they put out time and time again. A lot of these breweries, you won't get the same, you know, IPA, the same stout, the same porter, the same hyphen you know, next week that they're that they're that's on tap this week. 
They just continuously are changing their brews over because they lack the ability to create that overall consistency and making sure that these beers are are being done in such a way that they're tasting the same each and every batch. And that's something that's important. And I think that's a lot. That's something that we can arguably say that when it comes to a lot of these conglomerates, you know, Boston Beer Company, Sam Adams, things like that, you know, you can open up 20 bottles of Boston Lager and they all taste exactly the same. And the fact of the matter is they a lot of these larger companies have perfected the ability to maintain sustainability and consistency. So that's my two cents. I really, really, really appreciate you guys for joining us today for episode number 18 of Calling All Craft Beers. And I promise next week we're going to have some more beer reviews. I'm going to get back on the ball and hammer back some more brews this week. So uh, I got my 13-year wedding anniversary coming up this week. So look forward to some fun anecdotes about that coming up. And uh, this is Luke Calling All Craft Beer, episode 18. Later.